Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Hoodoo Cleansing Protection Magic, Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to the show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Ed the Pagan. Thanks for coming on, Ed. I'm glad to be here. So, what's going on in your world? Um, well, this time of year is always great because it's uh, heading towards Samhain or, or the secular holiday is Halloween. So that's always a lot of fun. It's high activity uh, in the sense of that you have both Halloween, which is the old harvest celebration made very strongly commercial with costumes and fun. I love that sort of thing. But it's also the more sacred time of the year, Samhain, which is the honoring and celebration of the dead, the thinning of the worlds, and the idea of the spirits can walk the, walk the earth. So there's this religious side that I deal with, and also, like I said, I love the fun of it. That is awesome, man. So, so how, did this, how did the Harvest Holiday get started in the pagan world? Like, you know, why is it so important to them, that, like the harvesting part of it? Like, you know, like in some ways I would think like maybe spring would be like the big one because that's like the birth of everything. Well, spring is the, so we have the first fruits in the spring. We have the celebration of the seed where we're planting the earth. We need fertility in the spring because that's when we're planting everything. Um, starting in like August 1st, it's called, uh, you know, there's the celebration of the first harvest and, and Mabon is mid-September. And Samhain represents the last harvest of the year. Today in our modern society, we can't comprehend what our ancestors faced every single year especially in the northern climes and some of the deep southern climes imagine that every amount of food you would need to last you four five six months had to be in your house ready at the end of the month hmm. and you would not go to be able to you are not able to go to a grocery store you might be able to hunt a little bit in the bitter cold but every piece of food you had to have to survive had to be there, and you would know if you if you were all going to live through the winter or not, based on the amount of food you had. And then the harvest celebration came out of the idea of um, the idea that all the every everybody's heavy foods that they would eat, everybody's uh, food that they would um, extra foods they would eat uh, would come out of that. So like the extra fatty foods, the things that would spoil right away, things that could not be preserved, were eaten in great droves to build up your fat. So it was, it was like a bear getting ready to hibernate. Humanity did some of the same things. And that became a festival. It was joyful. It was happy. Mm. You know, and it was also carried with great fear because if you didn't have enough food, you didn't have enough fat, you might not make it to spring. Yeah, that would definitely be an issue. I imagine they really had to scramble this time of the year to prepare for the winter. Um. So, so what else is going on with um, how, how's uh, which school and the podcast and everything else you've been doing? Um, so um, on the podcasting, 
we've been I'm getting back to doing more regular podcasting. Uh, so it's Pegasus Tonight Radio. This week we're going to do emerging pagan leaders uh, dealing with the youth. Uh, the big event for me is the Parliament of World Religions is next week, and it's gone all virtual. As everybody knows, I'm a technomage. I have mm-hmm. been advocating for the use of magic and technology for the last two decades, and that I think that now COVID really has made that very possible. Has been you know made it very interesting. As whereas before COVID, everybody says, "Oh, you can't. You really don't want to do your festival. You want to go to festivals live. You want to go to events live." There's nothing like going to an event live, they said. You know, why would anyone want to watch it? Why would they want to interact it? And I'd been a Zoom member for – most people think Zoom came out of nowhere, but it's been around for like 10 years. So this idea of online conferences has been around. And all of a sudden, it was all that we had. Mm-hmm. Now, the Parliament of the World of Religions, which has met seven times previous, uh, you know, sort of previously, one in 1893, then 1993. Well, I've been to all of them. Of the modern era. I can't prove I was there in the 1893 <laughs> yet. I'm working on it. Anyone who has a time traveling machine, let me know. I've got my destination. Uh, <laughs> um, but beyond that, so, so the problem of world religion this year has gone virtual. All the leadership of the world, of the pagan, of, of the religious world, Dalai Lama, uh, the Vicar of Christ, the sort of all of the different uh, people who've normally met once every few years, is now meeting virtually for the first time. I think that's extremely disruptive. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to change how we view the religious world. And that's next weekend. So I'm really excited about that. Wow. Um, how, how is paganism received in that uh, type of community? So it's gone from, it has gone from being ridiculed in 1993 to the 2015 parliament, the, one of the leaders, the vice chairman, was a, a, a Wiccan priestess by the name of Phyllis Karat. Uh, and now we have the vice chair of the Parliament of World Religions is Andres, uh, Lord Andres, who is a pagan. He was an earth spirit pagan. So we've been kind of accepted. It was our own tradition at the last uh, Wicca got to recognize as a worldwide religion. Mm-hmm. But in 1993, we were ridiculed. You know, nobody really wanted to deal with us. It was really a very difficult thing. So just as the pagan community has gotten more and more accepted and, and more and more into entertainment, more and more mentioned to the world, more Harry Potter-ish, you know, more, you know, entertainment-wise, you know, more magical uh, kids cartoon, so too has it grown inside the world's religions because we have people who are doing really good work in helping people and saving people. So this two, thr- you know, this two elements of, a more improving community capable of doing more things, uh, such as you know, charitable works and things like that, has done really well. Plus, entertainment has really l- lowered the, sc- the scare factor. Mm-hmm. So those two combined, so that we we have a seat at the table, we have a seat high on the table. So it's a it's a great thing, and it's a heavy responsibility. That is awesome. What are some of the um, common things that paganism has? with some of the other more um, Judaic-based religions. What they have in common? Yeah, like far as a purpose. Like when you're at these conferences, do you guys like sit down and look for like things that you guys have in common and can work together on? Sure. Um, at the last parliament, was a good example of Parliament of World Religions, which is, you know, this sort of, it has this thing called the global ethic, which is a way that we should be behaving with each other. 
do no harm to each other. It has very much a pagan flavor to it in some ways. People would not say it because it was that. But the place that we're most common uh, with is the idea of uh, climate change and the mm -hmm. way the earth should be treated and, and stewardship. We've always been advocates for it. You know, people don't remember that in the 60s, a lot of uh, the pagan people were saying, we got to do better with this thing. We're about to have a major disaster. And everybody goes, oh, you're just being alarmist. And today we're very much into that vision world that a lot of our early, early elders were saying, this is coming. This is coming fast. We're seeing the signs of it. Today, the, the world religions have embraced different parts of the world religions. Not all, not everyone, but a lot of the progressive parts and more of the elements have now said, we need to really be, be better stewards. And uh, the pagan community has always been in that space. So now we are able to help in that space really well. Hmm. Awesome. Um, are there any areas where uh, paganism is still not accepted in that world? Oh, sure. Most of the world. You know, for all that it's worth, it's not even accepted fully here. I mean, we're still seeing combat in the United States. Um, in Brazil, indigenous religions have just got, taken a major setback. The government of Brazil has literally physically trying to wipe them out. And so that's a big thing. You start to see that. They're, they just passed a law which stripped them of all their lands by the Supreme, their Supreme Court of all the lands they've held since 1988. Hmm. So if they, if they held lands prior to 1988, they're saying, oh, no, you're not ever going to recover those. We're saying that that's the moratorium. Um, the government has done various programs. Uh, there's illegal miners who are going in and killing indigenous people in order to take over that land. That's the worst case. In India, we're still seeing witches being burned. So, <coughs> You think of it as a modern society, but it's, it's still out there. In South Africa, you're still seeing where we have a fairly large uh, community of both witches, Wiccans, and pagans. And the witches, there are more native to the area, not the westernized version. They're getting laws passed against them, and they're trying to create a law that allows them to continue to exist. So you have that, and you have, you know, and then of course the United States. You have every every time some law tries to get passed, it's pagan, it's not Christian, it's not this. So you have that general prejudice in America. So no, we're well, we've gotten a lot more acceptance and a lot more space to move, mm -hmm. and a lot less direct persecution. There is still a huge amount of discrimination and fear, and because of the, you know, because of the the genocidal fantasy of apocalypse and, and you know the the Antichrist and all of that, there's always this idea that we're the enemy. So, yes, we're still in desperate, you know, we're in still very dangerous areas. What is it you think they fear the most about the pagan community? Um, oh, it's very simple. We have two major beliefs that really state something that's hard. One is the idea that we... You know, we believe in personal responsibility. Sin is not an answer. You know, sex is not a, a sin. You know, you can have sex whatever way you want to. You can have, you can live whatever way you want to as long as you don't harm none. So self-expression, you know, that kind of energy of thinking differently that I don't have to conform to society. I can go out and wear whatever I want. I can have love whomever I want. I can do whatever I want as long as I don't bring harm to other people is, is very frightening. Mm-hmm. People want their children to be like them, even though they never truly are. There's this idea of extension of civilization, and that's highly structured. Pagans live a cyclical life, which believes that everything here is of the moment. We have a hedonistic agenda. 
meaning we believe in pleasure as much as you know the world doesn't have to be a pain it doesn't have to be misery it doesn't have to be suffering there's no reason for it right in fact everything we've ever needed was provided by guy herself and it's us who are bringing these structures into space and that in order to have some of these structures people believe that there has to be suffering there has to be pain you have to earn it you have to work hard i mean you're seeing what i think is a very great ideal in paganism you can work where you choose to do the work you want to and yet you're hearing people scream about a labor shortage that doesn't really exist because they don't want to pay the higher wages they want people to be un, you know unable to survive quite the same way they don't want them to be able to to grow and uh, so you see people working out you know getting out of the labor improving themselves but that's very much a pagan ideal to me is do as you choose to and that the idea coming down from a lot of corporate owners and a lot of people own that they have some sort of right to workers you're seeing that right now mm. the second one and this is the one that is crucially different soul ownership who owns your soul do we have from the moment we're born a mortgage on our soul that we have to earn our right into an afterlife that's what that's basic uh most basic uh monotheistic religions that God granted us our life, we have a mortgage on it that we have to pay back by serving him and good deeds. It's a form of slavery or serfdom on a spiritual level. Mm -hmm. I just don't get, you know, I'm born with a soul that was created, and now I have to pay back for the creation of my soul. It's kind of like the gross uh, amounts of student debt saying, I want to be a doctor to serve the world, but first I have to pay a tremendous amount of money to be able to be a doctor, and then I have to pay off that debt to be a doctor before I can do good for people. So soul ownership is an essential part. And pagans believe in some, in various forms of reincarnation or rebirth, so that we don't have to, you know, that, that our soul is our own and that we have this path that we journey for, that we have a certain amount of free will and destination even to, to the soul. And one of the reasons why that's dangerous in cultures that have had reincarnation, when an oppressor comes in, the people aren't afraid to die, even to suicide, because they know that they will be reborn. So if you take away that idea that this is a one-and-done life, mm -hmm. to get into some sort of get into heaven, which if you ever see at the end of the book of the Revelations, it's a 1,500-mile by 1,500-mile city. <laughs> um, it's, it, read it. It's literally, if you believe that literally, it means that they want to move us all into a 1,500-by-1,500-mile city, which would hold all of humanity, no doubt, in order to be able to continue serving our mortgage are serving our debt to a heavenly force, to the Father. And that's that's unacceptable. That's unreal. So we don't believe in the end of the world that way. We believe that <coughs> life has been around for a long time, and we are just one transitional moment inside a continuous life. Interesting. I mean, a lot of that parallels Buddhism, in my opinion. And mm -hmm. yet it seems like they don't have the same issues with Buddhism as they do with paganism. Now, I have my own theory of why. I mean, I think it might be sexual freedom is why they might accept Buddhism more than paganism. What do you think? The truth is, Buddhism <coughs> heavily. Uh, early you know, the early Christians came in and persecuted Buddhists when they moved into India, and they, did, they failed there when they moved into the East. Buddhism in the West is only a very modern thing. It was not really allowed to move in. We just forget that, that it got to a point where it wasn't worth persecuting anymore, that they fit their culture. The culture changed around them. 
and that they stopped being persecuted. Islam was persecuted in the early days. Christianity used to be a persecute, you know, used to persecute them. Now it's won its uh, battle. It's won its places. So it becomes the oppressive religion. I mean, even today, uh, Tibetan Lamaism is still mm -hmm. very persecuted. We just don't see it in the Western world because we think of it as cute or adorable or not offensive. Right. Like you said, they, they, they're very orthodox in, by Western ideology. Mm -hmm. But it's still being persecuted in the world today, depending on where you're at. Hmm. Why does this even happen, you think? Like, like, why do people want to persecute other people to begin with? It doesn't make any sense to fight over beliefs. At least to me, it doesn't. So it goes back a long time. What makes Homo sapiens different than every other culture that has ever existed? And that was, and uh, uh, Ewell, a book called Sapiens, did a really good job of explaining this, is that we began to be able to, our imagination suddenly came to life. Now, everybody says, oh, Matt, you're, it's your imagination. It's not real. Imagination is the single intuitive art that we all possess to see the world differently, to trust our ideas. Without imagination, we would have no civilization. And about 70,000 years ago, we started seeing uh, tribes in Western Africa begin to share, have imagination, and then they could share a story. Whether it's true or not, we could generate an outside story which put us together. An example he uses is that one tribe goes over to another tribe and they see the same sort of god figure, you know, that, that rock that's a god figure in that other tribe and goes, oh, we have that same god. We must be cousins. We must be related. And they go, yes, good. And now we can trade with each other. We can trust each other. Uh, money, the greatest story ever told, is we may not <laughs> trust each other, but we can trust that dollar we're handing to each other. You want to hand me a rock, I want to hand you a dollar. You trust that dollar, therefore you can trust me, you know, to give you value for it, and I take the rock. Hmm? Without that, I would have to negotiate with you to find some common ground. So our religions, our cultures, our civilizations, all about finding common ground that we can share across each other and increase the amount of trust, even with the stranger. You know, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. That means we can if you say you're a Christian, we have we automatically have to have a higher degree of trust in order to have that culture, to have that civilization. Oh, we all believe in the Bible. We all believe in the Ten Commandments. We all believe in the eight you know, virtues of Buddhism. We in Shinto believe that there's a special soul to the Japanese. We all have these sort of paradigms. And anything that comes in and disrupts that paradigm threatens that trust, that culture, and that continuance. And we're really afraid of being disrupted. We need that continuance in a lot of ways to, to feel safe, to feel comfortable. It's, Why do you think we can't get past that culturalism type of view and move more towards a humanitarian type of concept? We are constantly. People just <laughs> misjudge how long it takes. Well, part of it's hardwiring. We're hardwired at birth. You know, we know that the first six months of a child's, how a child's treated in the first six months is extremely important. Children that are not touched in six months act very differently than children that are held for six months. You know, the, the children that are taught breathing. And then we see that sort of hardwiring. The brain becomes harder. It begins to perceive. It starts to see. It's, you know, we, we start out with barely any senses. And we have to learn to trust our environment. So the more trust that our environment has for us, the more that our brain hard, hardwires to that. 
if we're kindly treated, then the child is kind. If uh, if a dog, and it's true of all animals, if you you know treat a puppy with a lot of love and kindness, it becomes very adapted to human beings. If it's you know punished by human beings, it becomes vicious and wants to stay away from human beings. So to humans. And then the next phase, which is about six months to five years, is where we start forming these little perceptions. We start these things called associations. And it starts out like little threads, but eventually it becomes hardwired. It's so we become very much established in them. It's like people who start smoking in their teenagers, and you ask them, oh, I need to stop. They know they need to stop. They know all the evidence says it's going to bring cancer. It's going to shorten their lives. It, it stinks. It puts it on their fingers. But because the hardwire of our brain, the way we exist, they, and then how much of that's their identity. I'm a smoker. Therefore, you know, that sort of thing. It becomes very important for them to continue smoking until something harder, something so dramatic. And a lot of times it's like losing a lung, getting cancer, seeing somebody in their family die of it before they can actually force their minds to overcome that hardware. So when we ask for a cultural change, we have to have our mind, our software, our wetware overcome our hardware. And that's tough. Hmm. So do you think it would take something like a, <clears throat> almost like a, a an extinction type of event to bring humanity together? It could. Um, it's, it could happen gradually. It can happen strong. COVID, I think, really disrupted our, our hardware, right? A lot of people are not going back to work the same way. A lot of families found themselves happy with their homes. The houses got pulled. You know, the reason why we've seen high home prices is because people pulled their homes Instead of chasing the next big home to make them feel better, they just decide they're going to make their homes feel better. And Home Depot and Lowe's and the home improvement, mm -hmm. the idea of nesting became really important. So that was a huge disruption of a hardware from saying, oh, I need a better, bigger home to be happy, though, to saying, well, I really do like my house. And then mothers who said, I really like my children. I didn't know who they were. So COVID is an example of that example. And at the same time, we saw large areas of the planet which were no longer being you know kind of overpopulated over destined start to improve simultaneously so yeah it, it takes crisis it's not an extinction event but a crisis large enough to force a change on the population to make a difference hmm. and about, we're in the middle of that cycle right now <clears throat> but it also seemed to have aggravated some things too like in our political system um you know this whole I mean, it's obviously like a, a manufactured crisis, but it's bizarre. Meaning, which let's take any <clears throat> one of them, any time in our history. Mm -hmm. First of all, the United States has been a revolutionary country from this day. Every, every generation tries to overthrow the gen last generation. We've never had two generations go back to back to being exactly the same. Right? So, you know, if you say, well, take me any generation... Well, in the 1890s, we had the telegram coming in, and people were pissed that they were putting wires all over the country. They thought they were going to electrocute them. Mm -hmm. And then as electricity came in, you know, Edison made it worse, made it sound like we were going to have all this electricity. How unsafe it is. You're going to die if you have electrical wires next to your house. Even today, we have that phobia of causing cancer and everything else. Though we can't find any real scientific evidence to back it up, we have to believe. Then cars, cars came in, and then everybody was like, oh, I would never drive a car. You know, Ford said, if you ask people what they wanted, they just wanted a faster horse. And then by the time we got into Eisenhower, he decided the big growth of infrastructure was they're going to lay down 6,000 miles, 60,000 miles of car, you know, of road, you know, disrupting nature, disrupting everything. Yeah, you know, because everybody had a car, then they wanted to travel better. Um, 
Let me. I, I always give this one. If you want to see how fast change happens, how many phone numbers do you remember today compared to how many you remembered as a teenager? I remember one. My parents okay. phone number. And, and as, a teenager, <laughs> as a teenager, I could pick up the phone and call my grandmother, <clears throat> my friends, and I never even thought about it. I just put the sequence of numbers into the phone. Mm-hmm. It became was natural to me. Today, I know exactly three phone numbers. You know, my daughter's, my lady love, and um, an emer- and my uh, besides my own and an emergency number that I keep. Mm-hmm. The rest I've taken and given it to my <laughs> smartphone. Hmm? It's true. My external Very memories. True. My cell phone right here is an external memory system. I use it to set, store more memories that I can access, and because I don't have to access them in here, I can access them in there. I don't have to remember them. That's a big cultural. If you think about how big a culture has shifted from being able to look, people memorize huge sequential sets of numbers so they can contact each other, and that didn't exist two generations before. That would have been like a ridiculously difficult thing for, say, the 1940s people to actually think about, because they would pick up the phone and ask the operators to find that person, mm-hmm. and then we memorized all these numbers because that made it easier. Now today, nobody memorizes those numbers. <laughs> Right? That's true. We don't even have phone books anymore. <laughs> right? And phones without cords and things like that. That's a huge cultural shift that came very peacefully. There was no fighting over it. Not too much. Hmm? Um, there was fights over the towers. There were fights over it because it was extremely useful. We will accept any cultural change that saves us time, that makes it easier and more convenient for us. So when we get into politics, right now we're having a hard time with politics is because one part of the culture has been told that their culture is going to be disrupted. Remember, we said we hate you know, attacking our hardware. And the idea of a more equal society takes away these menial jobs. Nobody should work. I'm, I'm a big believer. Robotize all jobs that can be made into robots. You know, I don't really like self-checkout because it's not more efficient than a cashier. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly more unpleasant. If I have only two or three items, I can walk up to a self-checkout and out the door I, I am. I don't need yeah. help with that. You know, if we have more robotic cashiers, I'm all for it. Well, what about the jobs? Well, we're seeing if we spent in COVID, did something, it got people to get more training. They were able to breathe so they can look for better jobs. The medical field has absorbed a lot of people. The coding world has accepted a lot more people. A lot more people were able to get online and work at, in foreign countries as well as people working here. The idea of the hamburger flipper, hand it to a robot. We're, we're about to do it. In five years from now, there won't be too many human uh, burger flippers except for real specialty guys. You will pay extra to go into a restaurant that has a human <laughs> hamburger flipper because he's so precious and they're so unique. <clears throat> but McDonald's, they're going to automate it. You know, and that's hard when you're used to uh, having an underclass that mm-hmm. works really hard. You know, hmm. For pagans, industrial societies, technological society is really difficult because they believe, a lot of them believe that the better society, and this is our Achilles heel, is the agricultural society, getting off the grid, getting away from the man. And that's really hard to do, but also it's really hard to do that work. You know, it's not easy. You know, it's not simple. And we are grateful, you know, I'm grateful that we have so much machinery available to give me the food that I want whenever I want, but it's not necessarily the healthiest thing in the world, but it's healthier than starving. Mm-hmm. So McDonald's will become like a vending machine. There's already a pizza. Look up pizza vending machines. 
Are they? They've already got them. Hmm? Wow. I okay. Didn't even know We've that. already got a vending machine where you put in your money, decide the ingredients, and you can watch a pizza being made. Yeah, I guess why not? Yeah, and, so. and same will be with these other machinery. Any human activity that is duplicable and is a process is going to be better off by being done by a robot. They make fewer mistakes, fewer energies, fewer problems. Does this mean, though, um, we'll need smarter humans? Which means we'll that, need better, we'll need smarter humans, though. And, ah, and then we, then we need better education. Come in for me. Because the one thing that witchcraft, especially witchcraft and paganism teach us, is how to develop visualization skills, how to increase our imagination, how to ask better questions. It's really on that side of creativity that we exist on. You know, thinking, what does the gods look like? What is it, you know, these plants can do for us? What can we do with these things? And in that world of a greatly expanded, imaginative, creative world where humans are going into, right, then asking the question is going to be more valuable than getting the answer. When all the answers in the world are available to you, what's the question? And it's going to be a more leisure-based society. I mean, we're already seeing that. So in a world where robots can do anything that humans can do physically, who's going to tell the robots what to do? which is getting into our current culture war. What are we going to do when we don't have to do what we do? And remember, a lot of religions try to, to take away imagination in order to have you in the structure of sameness, You know that you mm -hmm. want to be the same as everybody else. Therefore, they made us into robots, into industrialism. It's not the school education, but a factory for educated children to work, on, to work in the system. Now the idea of something like Khan Academy where kids can learn at their own pace of what they want, is very threatening. Teachers unions all over the country are trying to get banned Khan Academy from coming into the school system, which is self-directed education. That's the next big battle in education, self-directed education versus factory education. Mm -hmm. And so when we are talking about self-direction, that humans can do. How we program the machines, how we build this culture, and we're the Dawn Star ancestors. We're the first cave painters upon the cybernetic walls. You know, cyber archaeologists a thousand years are going to look at it and say, what did those very primitive early cyber humans do? Oh, we built NFTs and put a lot of cat pictures up. And, <laughs> huh? and at the same time, we built a global Amazon and Walmart, and we built a global transmission system for supplies. They can reach this anywhere in the world from one end of the world to the other, mm -hmm. fairly seamlessly, and have reduced what was taking months to years to travel. Remember, to get pepper from Europe, I looked this up recently, in 1600, to get pepper from China to Europe took three and a half years. Today, it takes less than a month. Hmm? Salt, most precious commodity in the world, in the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm is now one of the cheapest things we do. We buy, you know, we buy a, a liter of salt you know, for that, and it used to be a half a pound of silver for a pound of salt. Hmm. So we see that. Um, aluminum. Uh, Napoleon, when he had the King of Siam visit, had his, him sit at aluminum plates, and uh, his officers had gold, and his, and his enlisted men had silver. We found electrolysis, a little bit of science, a little bit of magic, a little bit of alchemy. 
Aluminum is the most abundant single metal we have. It's incredibly cheap. We're always moving into that world of better and cheaper all the time. We're always moving more into the world of abundance. We just have to figure out how to deal with the side effects of that. How does this would, – would, would this affect things like land ownership and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, do, do you think that would go away? With land ownership? Mm-hmm. I think ownership in general is going away. I think we're heading into a sharing economy with more collectives. You know, a man, we, we, because we come out of this sort of monarchical, patriarchal, centralized ownership idea. That's why we have these billionaires who are really managers of societal assets. Jeff Bezos may get the benefits and do whatever he wants, like a wild man flying spaceships up. But he really is in charge of an ecosystem that provides millions of jobs and millions of people you know, supplies and goods every day. He allows 300,000 small businesses to actually function and actually a higher level. I was one of them. Uh, I was a worm farmer, and I sold my worms on it, and I never sold mm-hmm. more worms in any other source, earthworms, yeah, except through Amazon. I sold um, $100,000 worth of worms through Amazon, something <clears throat> I would not have done with my own local business. Hmm. So while we see it as ownership of the, of the individual, it's really ownership of the collective, and he really doesn't own it. Shareholders do. It's really not a question, have we ever been a sharing economy? We always have been. We've just idolized and promoted this idea of the strong man, strong woman, and then made a class of people who are allowed to own things collectively. Most of our society is collective owned, and now we're getting better. What is Uber but you know, sharing economy? You know, Dash, um, you talk about um, some of the bigger companies, Postmates, the, you know, delivery companies. It's really a collective delivery company that all the small restaurants can share. Instead of having to own all their own individual drivers, they get to da- you know they get to, to share all these other drivers and expand their businesses. We may complain because we're hardwired to complain. Uh, we have an organ in our brain, uh, the amygdala, which always makes us angry and <laughs> makes us you know scared and makes us that mm-hmm. because we were worried about the lion coming out of the woodwork. We always had to be on Larry you know, or the other tribe coming after us. But if we can start dealing with that politics, which is really what we're dealing with, amygdala politics, we're afraid of what's happening. We would see that we were sharing. Tool sharing, apartment sharing. What is an apartment complex? What is a condo but a shared hive? I mean, it's not really – the condo may be owned by one person, mm-hmm. but the complex is owned by everybody. So we're heading more and more into that shared economy. We're going to start seeing people working on systems they can share, shared cars. You know, when we become automated drivers, everything's going to become automagical. You know, when you want a car, you won't go out and get your car. You'll get one car out of the pool. We're already doing that. There's a lot of service. Enterprise, a lot of big car companies already have that, where you pay a monthly fee and you can go out and get any car you want. So this idea of a shared economy is becoming stronger and stronger. And it's going to lead to universal basic income or a certain amount of stipend we'll be able to draw from that almost automated communism or communalism. Hmm. That's what I believe. So if we go to like some type of techno communism, um, do you think that will end up like Russia or China? Well, no, because they were never communists. Okay. Okay. So that problem is that they were never communists. This is the biggest lie of them all. They were all socialists. They all believed in industrialism. Right. So, the greatest civilization on earth is not capitalism. It's an economic system. Communism, it's an economic system. Socialism, it's an economic and political system. 
right? What we really all are are industrialists. Industrialism promotes itself. It wants industrialism at its core means we want to produce goods and we'll do everything in our power to produce more and more goods, more and more creations. Mm -hmm. Russia is an industrial state. China is an industrial state. United States is an industrial state. We want to create more and more goods and distribute more goods. The industrial society wants only one thing. It's egregor. It's force is to, is to convert natural elements into parts of itself and machine parts. What's the internet but the greatest industrial, the world's largest machine? And Russia has it. China has it. All the other stuff on top of it is all human creations that are trying to figure out how we're going to control each other, how we're going to get our share versus their share. The same mechanism that creates warplanes and stealth bombers and drones taking us into conflict is also the same one that gives us cell phones that makes it possible for us all to communicate. So Zoom, all of this other stuff and positive stuff. Who brought out a, who brought out a vaccine after 20 years of research was able to bring a, 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 a life-changing vaccine which may have saved millions and millions of lives. You know, you may think it's something evil, but because it's being because of the po politics, we feel mm -hmm. differently. But the industrial society is what we really all are. So, as we become part of that industrial society, begins to mature, it will eventually shed communism, socialism, as terms. It'll be seen as basic living. It's basically what are we are allowed from the machine we've invested, our ancestors invested in. Do you think this will end war and discrimination? No, far from it. It's being built into the system. It'll continue to be there. It may not be against race, but it'll be against literacy. It'll be against numeracy. It'll begin to be against you know people who who want to not be knowledgeable will be discriminated against people. We're already seeing that distinction between the the educated class and the uneducated class, the internet class and the non-internet class. And war? Oh no, it makes war all that more efficient. When war turns into a video game, we're going to play with it a lot more. We just had a war that nobody realizes last year between Turkey and Azerbaijani. It was the first all-drone war. Mm -hmm. It lasted 44 days. There are major people who are studying it. They sent their drones to each other to capture a city. And there was no human beings really involved. I mean, there was a few deaths of humans, the only reason we know about it. But they were sending their, uh, their uh, drones against each other. Oh, no. Less war? No. Smaller wars? Yes. Hmm? More targeted wars? Yes. More, we're going to send people into that city. You know, if the Russians evaded America, it'll be by first class. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> no, so, no. Less war? No. I'm not a Pollyanna. <laughs> Do you think that um, artificial intelligence will ever become self-aware and become a threat to humanity? Of course. You know, a threat to humanity? No, I don't think so. Um, if it becomes a threat to humanity, it's because we decide we wanted it to be. We already have artificial intelligence in the narrow set. Let's call it expert systems, right? It mm -hmm. runs a lot of things that are just too difficult for us. We have trading programs that do it, you know, that sort yeah. of thing, and everything else. What we're asking for, are we going to hand over our moral authority to robots, to AIs. So right now we're suffering from, a, and this is where the battle of the culture wars are. Ethics and morality is no longer a philosophy. 
It's an engineering imp imperative. What I mean by that is that we're no longer asking, well, in school they ask this, well, you're in a car, you see one individual you know, crossing the street, you're going to hit them, or you can turn off and hit three people on the sidewalk. What should you do? They're both bad decisions, yeah. right? And you don't know until you do. Well, that has to now be an engineered program into self-driving cars. Hmm? It has to make that decision very quickly, right? And what if they had the third choice? Well, the, I could also draw, drive off that cliff and save all those humans, but I'm going to, I'm going to die. Mm -hmm. It's a really a question from a human being. You won't know until you're in that situation. Some people will drive off that cliff to save everybody else. Some won't. But in AI, it's what they're programmed to do. So ethics becomes a is becoming an engineering question. Hmm. You have a hundred pieces of food and you have a hundred and one people to eat, right? In a society, some people will say, "Well, we're only going to feed ninety people. We're going to let eleven people die because they're worthless." That's a moral and ethical dilemma because we don't know when the next meal is going to come around. So we're going to save a little bit of food for the top ten percent. That's the American society right now. We'll let the back end starve or get less good so that the top end always has what they need. And AI might figure out, well, they don't need that. So we're all going to feed everybody 90% of the food and everybody's going to eat and we're going to preserve 10% because we know that they don't need that many calories. Mm -hmm. That's an engineering problem. It's, an, it's not. An, uh, so the ethics and morality we program into our children, AI are nothing more than our technological children. So how we train them is how they're going to answer. The second thing that's going to happen with AI, and I'm really a believer in this, and this is something I'm trying to do, is that it really won't be humans versus AI. It'll be humans, AIs, and then there'll be the class called cybernetic humans, people who merge with the technology, who become the core of it. We would probably see, before we ever see a general, I think long before we see general intelligence, we'll, think, we'll see humans in that role as primary factors. You know, the cybernetically enhanced human. You know, the president of the United States that has brain attachments, you know, that sort of thing to help them think faster. Uh, there's a new technology called MIND, M-Y-N-D, and it's a band they're wearing in the forehead, and they're teaching you how to use your mind to control and turn on and off mm -hmm. um, things in your house. Hmm? And they're coming out. So we're more likely to see, I think that's what we'll see first. But AI is not going to be any more dangerous or any more less dangerous than, than the humans that are behind them. I still think that humans are, again, that imaginative, creative decision-making force is still there and it's us programming them just like we program our children hmm. <clears throat> do you think that um when we like there are humans have like a lot of natural abilities i believe that we had stopped utilizing a long time ago oh sure like, especially like when we talk about things like magic and stuff like that and the use of telepathy and um just the ability to um, manifest different probabilities. And we've mm -hmm. stopped using all those type of things. Um, do you think that the integration between humans and AI and technology will even diminish those human abilities even more than they already are? Or do you think it'll enhance them? It'll do both simultaneously. It depends on the culture you want to create. If you want it to, to suppress them, it becomes a very powerful tool to do suppression. I.e., anytime you see a human being beginning these processes, the robot's been told to stop it. But I can give you one example. We've recently discovered that humans have another sense we gave up. 
and we've really given it up during the period of light. They have discovered that, and they've seen blind people who have taught themselves to use echolocation and be able to walk without using a, a stick. Mm-hmm. They, they click their tongues and they can hear. They're discovering more and more that that was a, a, a thing that humans did before there was outdoor lighting. Hmm. That we actually have the ability, like bats, to use our voice and our sound to echolocate. Our brains can actually echolocate. We go, hmm. A lot of the old humming sounds that we used to do and all the little chants we used to do used to also help us see in the dark by echolocation. No, because we have the thing called, we have a mechanism called the great forgetting. Okay. At one time, every human being knew how to detect the weather. They could sense the weather. It was just a natural thing. Farmers, we see it today, still do it. You know, we can sense the weather. We've lost that talent because of the forgetting. If we don't exercise these skills, we forget them. As, and when something comes along to protect us from those things, we go, okay, we don't need to be protected anymore. And we stop. You know, the idea of in Japan, do you know why Japanese bow to each other? Because why? inside their culture, they once had a touch plague around the, it looks like around the areas about four or 500 BC that was being spread by touch. And they figured that out. So they stopped touching each other quite as much. That's why Japan, and they became so important to their culture. They bow today. They wear masks today. They were burned so badly by a touch disease that they're now discovering that they forgot the disease, but kept the, kept the mechanism. Mm-hmm. And so we forget why we do things. And then when we figure out, well, why are we doing it? We override our hardware and stop doing it. You know, we don't care about the weather. If you're in the city, do you really care about the weather? Other than the inconvenience. <laughs> yeah. You don't go outside and go, I smell rain in the air. But if you go out into the farming country, you go, that's a big storm coming. And they're not hearing the news. They're not hearing anything else. They just know it. That's another way of using those senses. And we've had psychic senses, people who can precognate the future. In fact, every scientist precognates the future. We just call it, you know, scientific thing, but it's an imaginative process that they say, oh, I think that's possible. And then they make it possible. Magic is magic. And that's what I practice. Magic is taking that which is in your mind internally and creating it in the external world. And that's, you know, that's what our technology is. It's the externalization of Mm -hmm. our imaginations. So do you think that will awaken some of these things with the advancement of technology and be able to use them along with that? To create more yes, efficient methods? See it and, yeah, I do. And you, I can tell you where we can see this. This isn't some prediction. I can tell you exactly where we see it today. In the, not in the Olympics, we use scientific methods to make the body better. We actually have rules against using drugs and chemicals and all that. So we can only use external systems to make athletes better. Yeah, we have Simone Biles this year, which became the world's greatest athlete. So bad they had to discriminate her because she was so much better than every human being. No drugs, no nothing, just scientific study, analysis, and training her body over and over again to do these remarkable things to the point that no other human being can match it. And everybody who was on that Olympic team would have won a gold medal in 1956. Hmm? So we see in athletics... You know, the speeding of world records, the speeding up of how we can do things, the faster we go. We are seeing that uh, uh, basketball athletes, baseball athletes, all of them have dramatically improved over the last two, three generations solely because of science, because of the improvement of science. And they're moving faster 
and they'll move faster yet with AI as they're able to analyze more and more data. So true of the mind. I may have talked about us losing numbers, but how much information are we holding compared to our parents, compared to our grandparents? If we have a conversation with our grandparents, we feel like they're slow compared to us. And remember, <laughs> they were probably the most brilliant people. If you're a brilliant person today, good chance that your grandparents were brilliant in their age. And their great-grandparents were probably very brilliant, very well-read, very knowledgeable. Hmm? But compared to what we know in our head, even if it is trivia, even if it is about the world, right, we have better memory systems. We are improving our memory systems on a constant basis. We're discovering psychic abilities in people. We're actually now proving that those abilities exist. Yes. So this idea that technology suppresses these things is untrue. The ease in which they make it easier for us to allow us to forget because we don't have to is the great thing that is the great crime against us. We don't have to know how to grow vegetables because we can go to the grocery store and buy it. But the minute we forget how to make money, we starve. Mm -hmm. We don't remember, oh, well, I don't need money. I can go out and grow vegetables in my backyard. They've forgotten that. They've made that disconnect. Hmm? So it's really about using our technology to reconnect us to what we already know and how we do it. Mm. It's, it's very, I know for people, this is like, oh, no, this isn't how the world works. But it is, at least from my point of view and the way I've studied, of course it is. My kids, my my grandchildren, I play Pokemon. My grandchildren play better Pokemon than I do. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they just do. They use the technology better because that's where their brains are. Mm -hmm. Does that make them smarter than me? No but it makes them more knowledgeable. They've learned another process. And that's what everything is in culture's process. So why do we have fights in civilization right now? Why are we having such a fight in the United States? It's because the certain processes are breaking down. You know, these sort of archaic, monarchical, patriarchal, very oriented towards the moneyed class are beginning to break down because we have all these other systems we can work. Hmm. You can actually make money on yourself. Being an entrepreneur when I was a kid was really tough and looked down on. Today, it's celebrated. So, um, what would we do, though, if we lost electricity? Oh, like, say, with a big sunspot and we have no more electricity, we can no longer rely on our technology. Can we go back? To our old primitive survival mechanisms. Yes. Yes, we can. Some of us will. It's like the Ice Age coming in. Killed probably a huge amount of humans. We've seen huge die-off of humans before. If we lost electricity today, it would be devastating. We would die. We could already see how much panic comes into cities to get their electricity cut off for a week or two. You know, hunger begins to set in. Oh, no. We're completely and utterly dependent on electricity intelligent uh, energy electricity oh no let's be honest with you we a lot of us would die we would be thrown into chaos <clears throat> but human beings are self so self-organizing right hmm. some of us would then be repair the machines some of us will get back electricity some of us will you know get back together some of us will go out hunting other humans you know these psychopaths amongst us would take it as a field day uh the kind-hearted people will do everything they can to preserve as much food as they can and then so the farmers would go, okay, I just had to get back out in the field and grow more food. You know, we would adapt. But yes, many, many people would die if we lost our electricity tomorrow. Wow. Hmm? Hmm? Interesting. 
I would be amongst them most hmm. likely because I'm a diabetic. And I have to – and I exist today as a living entity older than any other male in my family who has survived. Understand, no other male in my family has survived in good health as long as I have, except for my great-grandfather who was not a diabetic. I now need uh, bio-engineered uh, microorganism in a lab somewhere to produce insulin because he used to take 10,000 uh, organs of uh, pig pancreas to make enough insulin to, for me to survive. You know, that was sort of thing. Now it makes it like cheap. I mean, there's, there's the argument of the politics of it, but it's fairly cheap. And every day I take a sh an injection of a, uh, a manufactured item, a needle, mm -hmm. to inject myself full of insulin that keeps me healthy and robust and alive. If electricity were suddenly to die or something were to happen to disrupt those microorganisms or disrupt the supply chain, I would probably have a year or two of, de of declining health or really strict because the way they used to serve diabetes is they used to starve them. You know, so anyone who's a diabetic is the first or amongst the first group who will die off. Hmm? Give you an example of what will happen unless we can figure out how to adapt to living in an electricity world without that. So, no, we don't we take for granted how much of our technological society has advanced to give us a good life, a better life. So some of the things that we've been talking about is the merging of technology and organic life. Do you think that we could merge the technology and organisms in order to create its own electrical bio field. So therefore we would be able to not. Yes. <laughs> I think we already have. I mean, we've already begun that process. There are cyborgs out there. Uh, Stephen Hawkins was a cyborg. You know why? Yeah, he was. I mean, he was that. Hmm? If it was not for the technology, the national health society gave him one of the most brilliant men would have, been vegetating within 10 years of his disease in a chair, unable to tell us about the brilliant thoughts he had about black holes and how space worked. Without the cybernetic enhancement, Stephen Hawkins would never have existed. This is a cybernetic enhancement. Glasses, yeah. Hmm? This is a... Every time they bring out a new cell phone, it's a, it's a mental upgrade. I've gone from being a podcaster, which had to go into a podcasting studio... Pay $75 an hour 30 years ago to do my show, Psychic Chicago Radio, to paying $75 an hour to a, to a company, and I can do my entire podcast off this phone. In fact, this, when in 1990, I wanted to go buy a television truck to do broadcast from, $175,000. I can do the broadcasting for next to nothing with a $1,000 phone. This is more pow as powerful as those trucks were. Right. So right. I now carry around that broadcasting equipment in my pocket. We don't really understand how fast technology is moving. Well, that's, that's definitely true. I mean, um, I mean, our cell phone should be able to calculate everything that we would need to do to get ourselves into space. Right. Right. So, so in a way, what these billionaires are doing is not that big of a deal. Some kids should be able to figure it out with a cell phone. And they have. There are models. If you ever go into the model rocket world, right? They're building bigger and better rockets. You know, you talk about Al Qaeda and you talk about the Palestinians. We should see what the American kids are building. They're building rockets. There's there's a challenge out there in the Mojave Desert. They go out there and they're trying to launch rockets to a hundred thousand feet, and they do it from their backyard. 
mean, they can build missiles if they want to. They are building this stuff. <laughs> hmm? You know, so, you know, we, we take, you know, and it's only because we're a peaceful culture. And America is a very peaceful culture. We may not feel like it, mm-hmm. right? Because of all the gun shootings and things like that. But we are a very peaceful culture. We, we can live with our neighbors. We have our conflicts. And our conflicts, even though they're on, they're a small scale compared to where they used to be, and they get really blown up by the news and the media because of our mass communication from many to you know from one to many, right? But at the same time, <laughs> we have enough guns that if we got really mad at each other, I mean, if really something got really mad at each other, we could have a war in which we have armies of two, three, four million on each side in five minutes. Hmm? That is true. You know, and other countries that have these political fights, even the one that we're having, you know, as bad as the capital insurrection was, if that would have been Venezuela, there would have been guns in the street. They would have been fighting for days with real guns, hmm? not kind of a march. On, I, I'm not quantifying and saying that it was OK. It wasn't. But that outraged us, that low violence sort of attempt at, you know, forcing the will somebody's will onto another group of people right was so low grade but if it was in brazil or venezuela or some of these other countries they would have seen much more armed people out of population that was well less armed than we are so we we have to take for even though we think of ourselves as aggressive and everybody's nasty and everybody's mean that's trying to hold a culture together but we're really a very peaceful people you know we behave very very well wow I never really thought of it from that perspective. <laughs> it's kind of brilliant, though, and you're absolutely correct because, I mean, it, it could have been an all-out war. Sure. And it didn't. And we didn't even need to have to worry about arming ourselves. We didn't have to stockpile weapons. We already got some stockpiled. There's 375 million guns. There's more guns than there are Americans. They believe that we have stockpiled across the United States, stockpiled, not being created. 15 billion bullets exist out there with a, 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 an ammo supply depletion rate of about $2 billion a year that's replaced. Mm. Yeah, for, and what are those $2 billion used for? A little bit of hunting, a lot of it's target practice. Target practice eats more bullets than anything else in the United States. Yeah, I, I do like going to the range. It's kind of right. fun. <laughs> right? Drones. We now have drones in the street. We're building drones. We're a peaceful society that wants technological betterment. I mean, one of the great enhancements I think is coming is VR, where we can teleport each other to our rooms. Zoom. Zoom, Zoom is not a video system. It's a transportation system. It's really cutting, and the number of places it's going to cut and is beginning to cut into it's the travel industry. People have learned in COVID that they don't have to go to meetings. You know, I, you know, tw- 20 years ago, for us to meet, I would have had to be in your city and uh, maybe through the telephone. You had to have a bunch of enhanced equipment to do it by telephone. Or I'd go to your studio and we'd sit and talk and be able to look at each other. Now we're, I'm in my kitchen at you know, a nice little place. I've got some pretty pictures up here on a Wi-Fi system. You're at your home, at your great office. I, I agree with your poster. I want to believe so bad. <laughs> um, you know, that sort of thing. And I get to see inside your house. You get to see inside my house. We get to see each other. What is that? But, you know, astral projection in a True. physical sense. True. I'm a big believer. So I don't think that we're gaining, we're losing anything. I think we're gaining so much. 
-hmm. I think we don't have a paradigm, a, a culture in our society right now that allows for it. Mm -hmm. um, give you another example, climate change. We all think it's going to be this huge disaster. Um, I'm joining Team Earth. Uh, Paul Hawkins just brought out, and if you really want to interview somebody who's really an amazing person, Paul Hawkins just bought a book called Regeneration. Hmm. And he's laid out a blueprint to regenerate the planet in one generation. If you have his information, send it. I'll be more huh? than happy. To, if you have his contact information, send it over to me. I will. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm working in that group, so I'm hoping to get more in that. But the idea is, is that he's saying we don't have to live with climate change. We can change it in one generation. We just have to make certain things that we have to do. So do we accept that we're going to do that? Or do we fight it to try to hold on to it? You know, people are mad at China for they said they're trying to sabotage the world economy. You know, China's fighting the climate change wars. They're shutting down major plants against profitability in order to stay within their quotas of electricity, to stop burning coal, to stop burning pollution, because they have a huge pollution problem. So the problem is sometimes these problems look like, and everybody says, oh, they're trying to shut down the economy by not producing steel. But they're saying, no, we're trying to save our environment by not pumping in more noxious gases into, you know, the coal plants. Mm -hmm. And if it means we have to shut down, you know, shut, shut down the electrical plants or shut down, you know, sh you know, use less electricity, use less energy, then we will do it. But they have an economic system that that, per that people will still get their paychecks and they will still get their supplies to live. Just because that steel factory shut down, they're given the job to improve it. Let's figure out how we can make lower energy. They can make those sort of improvements society and keep those people working so they don't have the economic disruptions. Our society, though, because they're not going to ship us the iron, the aluminum that we need to fill our supplies, we're going to disrupt our society because our capitalistic system says, oh, well, we don't need these people. They're just machine parts. Let's put them away. They have to survive on their own. You know, so climate change and these sort of changes do have a cost. It's just a matter of are we willing to pay those prices? And that's what the battle is. We don't want to. We're spoiled. Yeah. You know, there's there's so many ways to create energy. It's ridiculous. I mean, we there's energy that can be pulled right out of the air. Yeah. Tesla or, said that. You know, that there's that. I mean, we could tap into the Earth's core, get energy that way. Mm -hmm. um, there's probably biological things that we could create that will just move around and create en energy. There's a tennis shoe with uh, piezo uh, crystals in it that you can use to recharge your phone with <laughs> by walking. You know, health clubs, forget, you know, they should be putting generators on every single one of those bikes to self-power the uh, health clubs. Yeah. Because we're losing calories. I mean, it's imagination and the willingness to solve it. And that's getting back to where we started this conversation. Why do I think paganism for me is important is it doesn't take that the end of the world is inevitable. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take that we have to go through these problems. It tells me that the world is abundant and it has all of these amazing things. I just have to explore it discover it to be open to it and the more that i can be open to these ideas these imaginative process the less fearful of technology i become the less fearful of other humans i become the less fearful i become and more in tune in awe and wonder of how the world works <laughs> and i am able to live a better and better life because of it my life has has always been improving all my life even when it's tough even when it's difficult even when it's depressing even when i've gone through horrific things Right. It's still been improving the entirety of my life because I've been open to the possibilities of what, what is. 
And then because we need crises, because we're humans, to kick us in the ass sometimes. You know, COVID has been has done us so much better than we know. You know, we've lost a lot of people, but having to deal with the issues, we're now facing a very different reset of our society. That's and, true. Uh, and we got to know each other during COVID. We did get to know each other. I started this podcast because of COVID. <laughs> so I'm saying, even though the disease was terrible, and we didn't really have to go through it, we had answers, but because of our blindness, because of our cultural blindness, our unwillingness to prepare and to be compassionate to other human beings, we went through the crisis part of it. But on the back end, we had all of these benefits because they forced us to change our behaviors because we did finally decide we had to be compassionate. We did have to be self-protective. Mm-hmm. We did have to find a way to live without killing ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then because of it, you have a podcast. I'm, I've been on more podcasts than I have in a long time. <laughs> um, I've gotten people... Um, one last thought. So I helped a company, I, uh, a company that has now come out of this. It's called Speak Your Own Book. Okay. So a lot of people said I couldn't write a book again, but I own a podcast, yeah, but I couldn't write a book. So my friend Chris uh, came to me early on. She was a transcription service for governments and things like that. And says I'm losing work. Do you have any ideas? And my friend Reverend Don uh, did a whole series of vlogs, like one, two, three minute answering questions online for years. And they said, well, could you transcribe those into a book? They ended up making four books out of it. Uh, The second one's coming out. They transcribed them all and organized them into books. Mm -hmm. She used that to create more books. She created a company that is now doing a dozen books for people who would not normally be able to write. They're doing it through verbal. She's having her transcribers and her ghostwriters put it together. Um, There's a book called Medium 365 by RJ Greenfield coming out that has been made by this process. So think about it. Podcasters could have a book within a couple of weeks. And then we're using Kindle to publish them. Right. I, I, so I thought about taken, doing that. Like I was using Otter AI to transcribe my podcast. And, and I was sending them to an editor over in, um, in the UK. And then she would send them back. And I put them with my transcripts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then if you had another person to kind of put them into the Kindle system, mm-hmm. you'd be published in 72 hours under your own own gesture <laughs> and make more profit than if you went through a gatekeeping publisher yeah now the only thing that gatekeeping publishers can do is that can you draw enough attention to your book to make it worth your while to let them take the majority of your profits mm-hmm. right or do you have enough attention because you can market directly because you're not asking anyone's permission to do this podcast anymore true when i started in radio i had to get permission <laughs> <laughs> Either they had to put me on the air for free or pay me to do so, mm-hmm. or I had to pay them. Right? Right. Today, I can go to Anchor or SoundCloud or any number of services or use some of the better systems. I'm not sure which ones you're using, but you're some of the better systems and pay a small fee to it. I you know, I use a paid system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you use know? Simplecast. The, the, huh? I use Simplecast. Simplecast, great company, right? They don't ask you... you what your show is about or what you're doing. They they have a few tiny rules about hate speech or some other things, right? Maybe. But they don't ask you what you do. Hmm? I don't even know if they have any rules. I mean, I guess they probably do, but... They're so deep in the terms of service, you probably don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> if enough people complained, if you did something really terrible, you know, you'd probably get stopped. But, but it's only in the negative. No one's going to stop you up front. Mm-hmm. Today, kids are creating their own music. 
and taking it straight to the audiences. Yeah, yeah. Not going through Atlantic Records anymore, right? And Atlantic Records, in order to keep their artists, have had to do better by them. So when anyone tells you technology is taking us away from ourselves, in the creative endeavors, it's bringing us more to the forefront. It's making it even more possible for people like you and I to express ourselves to the public. Now, it's, yeah. it, it leads us to be talented, how talented we are. That's a different <laughs> question. That's a personal <laughs> question. Well, it's, it's no longer a gatekeeping question. You know, it's definitely practice. Like, I never thought that I would be able to sit down, talk to somebody for an hour, put it up online, and have a thousand people listen to it in a couple of days. But, yeah. <laughs> but I can, and and I do. Uh. I mean, the only thing that that I've had to do is learn how to become a better interviewer, which came with practice. Mm-hmm. For me, the ultimate example of my breakthrough moment. Yeah, I'll talk about the guys, the guys 2000 project. And Abby Willer, who's now passed away, in 1998 had a message from the goddess that you need people all over the world to make cards, uh, coloring, you know, to do goddess art. And she goes, how could I possibly do that? So she went to the internet. In the year 2000, she had six participants in 68 cult countries and over 500 groups making over 2 million pieces of art. <laughs> within 18 months and the only rule she said what's an artist anyone who can use a crayon then awesome. out of that came which goal and which goal was teaching online and every prior to that you had to learn from somebody there was no formal schools you had mm-hmm. to learn from somebody if you wanted to learn you had to learn from books i gave created a kind of formal system it was the first goal of its kind today we have 288,000 people in the school we've trained over 4,000 clergies and we've established pagan uh, wicca in all sorts of countries as legal religions. You know, we have legal churches now in the Philippines, in the UK, South Africa, the United States, Canada, and still growing. We have lots of people in, in that. We're translating. Our website has a button on it that translated automatically into 100 languages. <laughs> that was given from Google. Uh, we have a virtual candle piece now where people can offer their prayers and light a candle just like you did in the devotees in the old Catholic Church. So... 20 years, we've been around for 20 years, and that's been our expansion. So yeah, so when we get down to this, so did, so did technology help enhance my skills, my communication skills, my ability to teach, my ability to reach people, to change society for the better? Yes, and we'll continue to do so. Will it help me with my psychic ability? Yes. Will it help me with biofeedback? Yes. It's just a matter of accepting that the world is good and abundant and that these technologies can be used for good and for personal purposes. Awesome. Or do we, or like like everything else, do we hand it over to others and and take no responsibility for the technology we use? That's the real question. Yeah, we can't do that. Huh? We can't do that. There's too much opportunity now for for people to grow. Mm-hmm. You know, if you wanted, um, you know. A t-shirt for you. You can have a t-shirt on the market within 24 hours. I do. <laughs> you do, right? I do. In my merchandise section. <laughs> right? And you never touch that t-shirt. Nope. See what I'm saying? Everybody, and you, people ask why there's a labor shortage. When I can go to the internet to develop a t-shirt, hmm? why should I go work for McDonald's when I go out and be creative and create t-shirts and Maybe little metal figurines from 3D and playing cards. And when I can be creative, when I can be 
capable of sharing things of great beauty or great skill or even great efficiencies. You know, there's a story about a pill, a guy who couldn't take his pills every morning because they were too small and he was too old. He went to the creator space on um, Makerspace um, on the internet and, and told everybody his problem. Pretty soon he had 30 people working on it, and they were sending him prototypes of pill, of pill dispensers. They finally figured out one, and they brought it to market very, very cheaply from people who were suffering from his problem. The time from the minute he mentioned the problem to the time he got a working to the market pill thing to handle his tiny pills so he didn't drop them every day was 35 days. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Why should we work for McDonald's when they can robotize themselves and don't love us? When people like this could use us to use higher level skills to make their lives easier. It makes perfect Why sense. Why is there a labor shortage? Because we, we're becoming better people. Hmm? We don't have to do the menial work anymore. Yeah. And that's what the culture fight is. Hmm? Unless, unless you enjoy it. Like, I mean, I will admit, I do sometimes enjoy menial, repetitious work, but mainly for one reason, because it actually helps me become more creative and think of other things to do. I do gardening. Yeah. Um, I do gardening. Um, I hate weightlifting work. I love to lift things. I hate <laughs> like weightlifting. So I'm moving right now. I'm moving bricks around my yard to try to make a, a, a new center. So, yeah. That's awesome. So it's a matter of, you know, it is a matter of that. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with menial work. Mm -hmm. It's not menial work. And we're finding out the tradesmen, you know, we're, we're so sorry we, we ended tradesmen skills because – now we're paying sixty-five to hundred dollars an hour for a plumber. <laughs> the job that we once demeaned is not being worthy compared to a college student, right? Right. So it's not demeaning labor; it's labor with a purpose. Mm -hmm. It's when we do labor with a purpose because it's just enjoyable. It's, it may be seem menial, but it's not really meaningful. It's called moving meditation. Yes. That, yeah. That's exactly what I mean. Mm-hmm. Cool. So we got to wrap it up. Um, okay. Where can my listeners find you? I'd... What's that? Where can my listeners find you? Um, I'm Ed the Pagan everywhere, <laughs> literally on every platform. Um, Ed, Ed the Pagan at Gmail. Uh, you can find me as Ed the Pagan on Facebook. You know, that I'm really easy to find. Just put the word Ed the Pagan. I got one of those legendary names that I, I and I alone use. So I'm <laughs> anywhere. Um, the probably the fastest connection is at the pagan at gmail.com. If you really want a direct answer, that's where I answer to. All right. And how about, Wick, how about a little plug for which school? Uh, which school.com. It's a 20 year community, the largest online community of its kind. We, we teach every day. Um, we help you live a better life. You know, just, you know, if you want it, we teach you skills Soft skills and magical skills that'll make your life better. And it's uh, 35 classes for free. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, my, I will post the links to that in the notes of this episode so my listeners can check out which school and follow you on every platform there is. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I'm even on Clubhouse now. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm on Clubhouse now too. <laughs> oh, TikTok. I haven't done TikTok. I mean, I'm on TikTok, but I haven't actually started using TikTok it yet. Fastest. So if anyone really wants to know where they get the best organic reach, TikTok. <laughs> and they love ghosts on there. Awesome. They love ghost stories. Um, thank you, though. I really appreciate it. I, this is a conversation I did not expect to have. Yeah, I, I, I never know. I don't plan. I just kind of wing it. So it works. It does. 
And you guys, and I do love your show. I'm a big fan, so. Thanks, man. I'm a fan of you, too. All right. Well, thank you again. And hang on for one second. I just have to play the outro. Change your life.